Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 23rd chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through this amazing book of stories of the apostles and how God used them to get the gospel to the nations. Bible scholar and commentator, longtime pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, wrote, God is never nearer than, we cannot, than when we cannot see his face. He is never closer than we, when we do not hear his voice. And he is never undertaking for us more than at those times when his own name isn't mentioned. As I studied this passage, the second half of chapter 23 of Acts this week, one of the things that I recognize is that I didn't see God's name mentioned anywhere. There's no mention of God. There's nothing about Jesus. There's nothing about the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, there's no doctrinal point that is being argued here. All we have is a narrative story of what happens at this stage in Paul's ministry. Last week, we left off of that story as Jesus had just shown up to Paul as he's been taken back to the barracks after this squabble in front of the Sanhedrin. Jesus shows up to Paul and he says, Take courage, Paul, for just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Paul had been dragged out of the temple and beaten by his fellow Jews. He had been arrested by the Roman soldiers. He had been tried before the Sanhedrin and then brought back to the barracks where Jesus shows up to him to encourage, commend, and commission him. And what we have in this morning's passage is simply what happens next in this story. And it's all very exciting as it unrolls, is unrolled for us. It, it, it's, it's unfolded for us like a movie. A plot is hatched. A conspiracy is born among the Jews to kill Paul. Word of this conspiracy amazingly comes to the attention of the Roman centurions and the Roman tribune who in turn pulls together this amazing deliverance of the apostle out of the grip of danger in Jerusalem and into the hands of the Roman governor of that province, this guy named Felix. This is what happens in the narrative of this passage, but there's no mention of God, no mention of Jesus, no theological point that's being argued or made here. And so we would ask, what profit is this passage to us? Paul himself writes or will write to Timothy, his protege, in 2 Timothy 3.16, what we are familiar with, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so what profit is this passage to us, this this narrative story. 
The answer to that question comes when we recognize that although God is not mentioned on every page of Scripture, doesn't mean that we don't learn something about Him. We should know that for no other reason than the very presence of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. In the book of Esther, there is no mention of Yahweh, no mention of God. And yet, perhaps, there is no other book in the, in the Bible that teaches us more about God's providence than Esther. As we learn the, about the narrative stories of Esther and, and Uncle Mordecai and the infamous Haman. And so we don't need to hear from God or even about God in order order for us to learn something about who he is, what he's doing, and how he's doing it. And so let's go to God's word now and, and read this story. And as we do, I want to encourage all of us to have on our spiritual eyes to look for the thumbprint of divine activity in and between and underneath the story as it unfolds for us. Acts 23, we'll begin in verse 12 and read through to the end of the chapter. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, there, <clears throat> now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 
So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering as your people to exalt your name, for you deserve our praise, every bit of it. And now we turn our attention to your word, Father, in that same spirit of worship and ask that you would teach us. Father, that you would use your word this morning not only to make us more understanding of what it says and what it means but lord that you would by your grace for your glory use your word to sanctify us to make us look more like your son so that you would be glorified by your church and we ask this in jesus name amen did you see it did you notice it the distinct thumbprint of divine activity in that story. It's unmistakable when you see it. The resurrected, ascended Jesus shows up to Paul in the barracks the night before and stood by him, we're told, and told him that he was going to Rome. That he was going to take the gospel to Rome. And immediately, there is a plot to kill Paul. But that plot is amazingly discovered by Paul's young nephew, who brings word of it to the Roman tribune in charge of the soldiers there near the temple, who in turn ensures that Paul escapes from that danger and is delivered to Caesarea. And God's thumbprint is all over this story. Underneath and behind the scenes, working to accomplish his good and perfect plans. Now, his work here is more noticeable in places than in others. And his work is more palatable to us in some places than in others. But he's never not present. He's constantly present. And he's constantly working, even when we don't hear from him, even when we don't even notice his presence, and even and especially when we don't understand what possible good purpose God might have for allowing some of the things that he allows here. Here's the main point that I want us to walk away from this text with this morning. I don't have it on the screen, and so just tuck this away. We can trust that God is always present and that he's always working through his providence to accomplish his sovereign plans, which are always for our good and his glory. We can trust that God is always present and he's always working through his providence to accomplish his sovereign plans which are always for our good 
and his glory. We see that in Paul's life here in this story. And it's that which we can cling to in our own lives as well. Before we dive into the story to see this, perhaps we should define our terms a bit. What is providence? When we say that that something happened providentially, what is it that we are referring to? John Piper suggests that providence is simply referring to God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. That it is God's sovereignty put to a purpose. In other words, if we, if we understand God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things, then providence is the exercise of that sovereignty for the purpose of God's perfect plan and purposes. And I think that's a fine definition of providence. Not that John Piper needs my affirmation or vote of approval, but he's got it. But I think that perhaps a further distinction would be helpful here regarding how God exercises his sovereign control over all things to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. Because sometimes he does that through miraculous and supernatural means and sometimes he does that in ways that are not miraculous are not supernatural but rather are simply his sovereign use of employment of introduction of and and perhaps even his sovereign manipulation of natural and ordinary means in order to bring about his sovereign and intended purposes. And I take that difference to be the difference between miracles and providence. Jerry Bridges makes this distinction as well when he writes this, a miracle is God's working outside of his creation laws and providence is God's working through his creation laws. Now, we've seen miracles in Paul's life in our study of the book of Acts, haven't we? Go back to when he was stoned in Lystra. He essentially rises from the dead and continues to preach the gospel. Goes back into town. In Philippi, there is this incredible localized earthquake that opens the prison doors and sets them free. In Ephesus, they bring handkerchiefs that touch Paul's skin. And they take those handkerchiefs and they touch them to the diseased and the demon-possessed, and they're healed. God breaks his creation laws to bring about these miracles. But there are no miracles in this story here. There are no supernatural breaking of God's creation laws here. Just sinners acting like sinners and boys acting like boys and Armies acting like armies and time being like, well, time. And yet God is working and moving. And he's accomplishing his divine purpose and will just as he is when he brings the miracles. And I think this should be encouraging to us today because 
the reality is, as we look around us in this world today, we don't see the prevalence of miracles as we did when Jesus had his earthly ministry and when the, the apostles did their ministry in the first century. We just don't see it. And it stands a reason that we wouldn't, because part of the reason for miracles was to prove that God was powerful and real. But we have something that the apostles didn't. This book, the Word of God. And so 21st century Christ followers, we don't need those miracles as much as the first century Christ followers did who didn't have the Bible. And so it's encouraging for us to see God's hand of providence underneath and behind the scenes because that's what we see in our lives today. Whether it's when we think that we're supposed to go this way and this way gets closed. Or whether it's when something happens to us that we don't think should have happened to us. Or whether there are things going on in our lives that we see no rhyme or reason to. They just seem to be just random things that continue to happen. And, and there's no rhyme. There, there's no reason. Friend, there is a reason. And there is a purpose. God is present. And he is at work. Just as he was in this story for Paul. Now, as I said before... His work is more noticeable in some places of this story than in others, and his work is more palatable to us in some places of this story than in others. We're going to look at four examples this morning of God's providence at work in Paul's life in this story. And I wish that we could start with one that is more positive. I wish we could start with one that is more palatable than this first one. But in God's providence, we will cover it first because we see it first. We see God's providence first through the means of man's rebellion. Through the means of sinful man's heart. The first thing that we're confronted with in this passage is this plot that is hatched to kill the apostle. In the previous passage, when Paul mentioned that he was on trial simply because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin began to fight one another instead of fighting Paul. But now they're back to the main event. Now they're back to fighting Paul. Now they are back to their true colors. And Paul is again public enemy number one in their eyes. And we're told that 40 of them bind themselves to an oath. Literally, they are, in the Greek, they are pronouncing a curse on themselves. Saying, in essence, may we be given over to the very vengeance of God Almighty if we do not fulfill this vow. And what is this vow? To kill Paul. And so they conspire successfully, it seems, with the Sanhedrin itself to create this ambush. You guys, go get the tribune. Tell him to come down here and bring Paul because we want to ask him some more questions. Tell, tell him that. And then he'll bring Paul down here and we'll be lying in ambush for him and we'll kill him before he ever gets in the court. That was their plan. They don't trust the Roman government that the Roman government is going to do what they believe to be justice for Paul. 
And so they become vigilantes. They conspire to take matters into their own hands. What we see in verses 12 through 14 is the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the evil, devious plans of sinful man's heart. What they're conspiring to do is not just unlawful according to Roman justice standards of justice, but it's wrong according to Mosaic law and God's standards of justice. Now let me ask you, who is accountable for the sins of these men? The sins that they are planning in their heart? Who's accountable for that? Well, they are, right? They're accountable for that. But is not God sovereign even in this situation? Of course he is. Now some might pause here and wonder, well, if, if God is sovereign over evil, then why doesn't he stop it? Why, why didn't God intervene here? He eventually does, but, but why doesn't he intervene at the beginning and, and, and prevent this thought from even entering into the minds of the Jews here Certainly he could have. I, I don't affirm some kind of unbiblical um, elevation of uh, the free will of man that, God, that prevents God from even being able to do that. Certainly he could have stopped that thought from entering their mind, but he doesn't. Why not? Well, it's because we don't understand the purpose of, for which he is allowing them to engage in this plot to kill Paul. And we'll get to that purpose in just a moment. But perhaps another question that might arise here is, if God is sovereign over, over evil, well, then doesn't that make him accountable? Doesn't that make him responsible for that evil? At least as much as, if not more than, the men who commit the evil. And to that, we must revert back, at least to begin with, with what we know to be true about the nature and character of God from Scripture. That He is completely good and holy. That He has no mixture of evil in Him whatsoever. It is impossible for the God of the Bible to have any evil in Him. All that He is, all that He does is 100% good, even when He sovereignly allows sinful mankind to enter into and engage and even act out of evil and sinful thoughts. Just consider the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, left for dead, sold into slavery by his brothers. Later, when his brothers encountered Joseph, who by this time in the story had providentially, by the way, arisen to second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt. As he stands before his brothers, his brothers cower before him in fear. And what does Joseph say to them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, brothers, what you did when you left me for dead... And then when you came back, realized I was alive and you sold me into slavery. What you did, you had evil in your heart. You meant it for evil. But brothers, God was not absent in all of that. 
God was there in that. He wasn't standing idly by. And he had an intention as well. But his intention was not for evil. It was for good, my brothers. And what was the good that God intended to preserve Joseph through those hardships so that many in this day now would be saved from the famine that was raking the land. Same is happening here in this story with Paul. There was an evil intention in the heart of man. What was it? To kill Paul. But friend, there was a good intention in the heart of God. What was it? Well, again, just prior to this, we were told that Jesus showed up to Paul in the barracks as he's bound and guarded by prisoners. And he says to Paul, in essence, you're going to make it and you're going to get the gospel to Rome. But the problem was he was still bound as a prisoner in Jerusalem. And so what happens next? Well, a conspiracy is hatched. A plot is hatched to kill Paul. And it is the awareness of this conspiracy, or we could say it is the awareness of this evil intention of man's heart, which is the means by which God providentially moves in Paul's life to get him out of Jerusalem and on the way to Rome. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Christian, just because you suffer at the hands of evil man, or just because you may endure hardship because you're seeking to take the gospel to a world that is growing in its hostility to the gospel, that doesn't mean that God is absent. And it doesn't mean that he's not working. Sometimes man has an evil intention to harm you, to hurt you, to cause you pain and suffering and loss and grief. But even in the midst of that evil, God has an intention that is good. Church, he's at work. He's there. He's working, providentially moving to accomplish his sovereign purpose and will. And we know from Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So in the midst of suffering evil, in the midst of enduring hardship, friend, recognize the thumbprint of God's divine activity. Even if you can't see it, he's there and he's working to accomplish his good and perfect will. So we see God's hand of providence at work in Paul's life, first through the means of man's rebellion, but secondly, we see his hand of providence at work through the means of small things. Small, seemingly insignificant, random things. The conspiracy is overheard by Paul's nephew. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Did you know that this is the one and only time in the Bible that we hear anything about Paul's family? Coincidence? I don't think so. 
In Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul will later write, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Many scholars believe that Paul, when he said those words to the Philippians, that he was including his family in that. Paul's family, and we don't know this for sure, but we can make a pretty good estimate that his family more than likely abandoned him. They abandoned him when he converted from a Jesus persecutor to a Jesus follower. Like the Jews here in Jerusalem in this story, like many Muslim families around the world today, to convert to Christianity meant that you were in essentially anathema. And to your family, you're dead to them. And we can surmise the same about Paul. But apparently he had a sister. We don't know anything else about her. We don't know if she remained loyal to her brother. We don't even know where she lived, if she still lived in their hometown of Cilicia, or if over the years she had moved closer to Jerusalem. All we know about her is that she had a son, Paul's nephew. And because of what we see later in the story, that as this nephew of Paul's is taken to the tribune, the tribune takes him by the hand and pulls him aside. That was a gesture that you did with a young boy. This was a, this was a young person. This was probably an adolescent, probably not yet even a teen, 10, 12 years old maybe. Young enough to be present for the hatching of this conspiracy without being noticed or at least without being considered dangerous. But old enough to be entrusted to take the testimony of this conspiracy to the tribune and entrusted to articulate it, articulate it accurately to him. So out of nowhere, Paul's family, whom we've never heard of before, just happens to show up not just in Jerusalem, not just at this very hour when Paul's being tried, but in the very room where the Sanhedrin are meeting. This, 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 it was called the Hall of Hewn Stones, this, this courtroom, if you will, built into the north wall of the temple in Jerusalem. How did he get in there? We don't know. But he just happens to be there there he is at the very hour that they are meeting with these conspirators about this plot to kill his uncle. Coincidence? No. So this young boy has the presence of mind to come and report this to Paul. And by the way, I think that's another act of God's providence. How did he get into the barracks to meet with Paul, who was probably bound and probably guarded by soldiers? How did he get in there? We don't know, but God makes it happen. And Paul sends him to bring the news to the tribune, who then puts into action this plan to deliver Paul from the jaws of this conspiracy against him. But where's the miracle? Where's the supernatural breaking of God's creation laws here? Where's the parting of the Red Sea? Where's the hidden army of angels? 
They're not here. But do we not see the thumbprint of a sovereign God here nonetheless? The world calls it coincidence. Church, we call it providence. Again, Jerry Bridges says the providence of God is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and the good of his people. And sometimes God, God's hand of providence moves through the means of small things like a, a conversation about his uncle. He didn't just happen to be in Jerusalem at this, at this time. He didn't just happen to be in this courtroom. He didn't just happen to be there at that very hour. He was there on purpose. Now, does God still perform miracles? Absolutely. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, that you do. But his sovereign will and purpose are not dependent on those grand miracles because he can work through the small things just as easily and just as effectively. He could perform a miracle to heal your cancer. Or he could impress upon you at the urging of your wife to go to the doctor and have some tests run. And you happen to show up right when that cancer is showing up. And the treatment which, by the way, is learned by modern medicine according to God's providence, healing you. Is God any less at work in the latter than he is in the former? Of course not. God's hand of providence is always at work in the small things. And we usually don't recognize what he's doing until we get to the end of it, and then we look back and we see his thumbprints, and we recognize the thumbprint of divine activity. Sometimes it works like this. He leads a like-minded church that's close by to connect with us and merge with us. And then just a few months later, he drops a pandemic in our lap. Through which, providentially, we grow. But we don't even realize how much we grow until people start coming back after the pandemic. And so then we start having these, the overflow downstairs, first because of social distancing, but then because there's not enough room for everyone to gather in this room. And, you know, as a result of us needing to do that and have overflow downstairs and have part of our flock in a different room, the elders become more convinced of our conviction of what the gathering of the saints really means. And then providentially, there is a double-digit inflation to where construction to expand our facilities just doesn't make sense. And it's not until we get to the end of that that we realize that God has been leading us all along to plant a church in Jackson County. Coincidence? No way. No way. You'll never convince me that it's just godless, meaningless, purposeless coincidence. No. It is the providential working of a sovereign God. 
working through his natural and ordinary means to accomplish his sovereign will and purpose. Christian, there are no small things, quote unquote, in God's presence because he's always present and he's always working underneath and behind the scenes to bring about his good and perfect plans. So trust him. Trust him. Thirdly, God's hand of providence is at work first through man's rebellion, secondly, through the small things, thirdly, through big things, through big, audacious, incredible things that God does to show his might and glory and power. What happens after Paul's nephew reports the news of the conspiracy to the Roman tribune? He literally calls in the cavalry. Look at verses 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Look at that. Look what God does. 200 infantry, soldiers on foot, 70 cavalry on horseback, and 200 more soldiers with spears and javelins to throw. And he even gets Paul a horse. And Paul is taken by armed escort all the way to Caesarea to have his case tried before the Roman governor of the province, Felix. What a show of God's power. What a display of his ability to use and manipulate natural and ordinary means in order to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. 470 soldiers just to get little old Paul out of town. How many men did the Jews have? What, 40? <laughs> and the Roman province, uh, Roman tribune assigns 470 soldiers. That was nearly half of the soldiers under his command at Jerus in Jerusalem to escort Paul out of danger and get him to Caesarea. You see, sometimes we see the thumbprints of God's providence in the small things. And sometimes we see the big old honking boot prints of God's providence in the big things. What a kindness this was to Paul to get an armed escort out of Jerusalem. And he, he the accused, even gets to ride on horseback. And I don't know if you noticed, but at the end of the passage in verse 35, we're told, where, where does he get to stay? In Herod's castle. He gets to spend the night in the castle. What a kindness of Paul, of, of God for Paul. What a way for God to show that he is faithful to keep his promises. He, he shows up to Paul the previous night and says, Paul, you're going to make it. You're going to get to Rome. You're going to bring this gospel to Rome. And he shows his faithfulness by having the tribune assign 470 soldiers to escort him to safety. What is Paul learning? What are the lessons that Paul learns from this? Well, he learns that God is faithful. He learns that God keeps his promises. He learns that God is gracious and kind he learns that God is always there. He's always present, always working. And he learns that there is no situation that's too big for him. 
And friends, those are lessons that Paul is going to need to lean on as we continue our look at him through the remainder of the book of Acts. Has God ever shown up for you in a big way to walk you through a time that otherwise seemed impossible and insurmountable? He's done that for our church. Some of you in this room know this story that I'm about to tell you. For others, it'll be perhaps your first time hearing it. Back in 2016, we sensed the Lord leading us to put down roots in this community. We had been a mobile church, a homeless church, if you will, for a number of different years, renting trailers and schools. But we felt that that it was time for us to invest ourselves in this community for the long haul and put down roots. And for us, we felt this meant purchasing a facility where we could do that, where we could put down roots. So through some quote-unquote small things that God providentially did, he led us to consider this building that had just come on the market And after working through some particulars about a possible loan, we determined that in order for us to make this work, we needed an additional 100, I went back and checked the letters that that we wrote to the church during this time, we need an additional $125,000 in less than a month in order to make the kind of down payment that we felt like we needed to make. That was a lot. That's a lot today. Back then... That was nearly half of our annual giving as a church. But we just felt led to put it out there. And if God wanted us to put down roots here with this building, then he would make it happen. And if he didn't, then it wouldn't. 25 days later, we got to report back to the church that God, through his servants here, had raised not 125,000 but 150,000 150,000 in 25 days for a church that was a lot smaller than we are today what lessons did we learn about god through that we learned that he's still with us that he's always there we 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 learned that that he's working And we learned that there is no situation too big that we can't trust him in. And friends, those are lessons that we will need to lean on in the days ahead as we seek to plant a church in Jackson County. All of us will need to lean on those lessons, whether we're sending or being sent. Friend, if you're being sent out from us, you're leaving what is comfortable, what is known. You're leaving your church family. You're also leaving the accoutrements of an established church with a building 24-7 and a youth group and all of that. And it will at times be rough going. It will be hard And in those hard times, dear saints, be reminded of what God did for us back in 2016. Etch that into your memory 
Just as I'm sure Paul etched this scene into his memory, riding on that horseback surrounded by 470 soldiers, he's still a prisoner, staying in the king's castle. And later, when he's on a ship bound for Rome, and a storm rages in the sea for 14 days straight. And God shows up to him again in the, in the midst of that boat. And he tells Paul, I'm going to get you and your shipmates through this because, Paul, you've got an appointment to stand before Caesar. So I'll get you through this. Paul remembers this. This is etched into his mind. And so he isn't afraid. And his faith doesn't waver an inch. Even though the storm continues to rage to the point where they're even shipwrecked. But Paul's faith never wavers. Why? Because if God came through for him in that instance, surely, if he wills it, he will come through for us in this. And friends, if you're staying here, if you're part of the group that is sending out these precious families to Jackson County to start Antioch Church, it will likewise be difficult for us as well. It won't be the same. It won't feel the same. We'll be without so many of our dear friends, and we will miss them dearly. But it will feel different in here. It, 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 it won't feel so full as it does now. It might feel a bit empty. It might feel like we've taken a step back. And those feelings and realities will be challenging to navigate. And on top of that, I'll just be transparent with you. On top of that, here's, here's where my heart, sinful heart of worry and, and anxiousness has been recently. Not just will those precious saints leave, but just to be real, can we be real for a minute? The giving of those precious saints will leave as well. And though we are 100% behind it, we will feel that decrease in the budget. It will be tangible to us and even though we have a sizable surplus by God's providential grace that surplus won't last forever and I think about that and I begin to 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 be concerned and, and anxious but then the Lord recalls to mind 2016 $150,000 in less than four weeks I'll just tell you, the giving of those families that will be leaving is about that per year. And God did it in 25 days. Oh, me of little faith, who am I to worry and be anxious when I have seen God come through in bigger and more dire circumstances? God's still with us, He's still at work. And there's no situation that is too big for him. He proved it back then. 
so that we can trust him today. The fourth and final way that God's providence is shown in Paul's situation here is through time. By time, I simply mean God's time, God's timing. What is God doing in this story underneath and behind all of the activity that we see? He's doing the very same thing that we noted he was doing last year underneath and behind the scenes. He's doing the very same thing that Jesus told us, told Paul at the end of last week's passage, what he was going to do. Paul, you've testified for me in Jerusalem, but now you must testify in Rome. What is God doing? He's getting the gospel to the nations by getting Paul to Rome. That's what he's doing. But at the end of our story, Paul isn't at Rome. He's out of Jerusalem, but he's not in Rome. He's in Caesarea. And as we'll see next week, he will remain in Caesarea for at least two more years. Two more years of waiting. Jesus says you're going to Rome, but he doesn't tell Paul when. Paul may have thought that he was going to go to sleep in the barracks that night and wake up in Rome, but apparently that was not God's plan. God's timetable was different than Paul's, and so often that is the case for us as well. God's timeline is not our timeline. Sometimes, church, sometimes God has us wait. But just as God was with Paul in his waiting, so he is with us in ours. As you wait on God for whatever it is, friend, you're not alone. He's with you. He's present. And he's not just present, but he's working. He's working underneath and behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose and will in his perfect timing, not ours. So God is at work. Even when you're not even aware of his presence in your life, he's at work. He's there. He's at work even when you're experiencing suffering at the hands of the sins of others. He's at work in the small things and the big things. Even though sometimes you don't see his thumbprints until years later. He's at work accomplishing his good purposes, even though you've been waiting on him for years. God's providence is at work even now. And for those who have never placed their faith in Christ, I want you to listen to me. It is in the providence of God that you find yourself in this room at this hour. It is according to the providence of a holy creator God that you find yourself within the earshot of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is that though man is sinful, all mankind is sinful and separated from God both in this life and in the next. Our good and gracious God made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him. And that way was his son, Jesus Christ, to send him to earth, to put on flesh, to live the perfect life that we never could, achieving the righteousness that we could never achieve, but must have if we are to be reconciled with God. And then he went to the cross, dying the death that we deserve, 
so that those who put their trust in him and turn from sin and turn to Christ might be forgiven, reconciled to God, granted the righteousness of Christ, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and therefore justified to be in his presence forever. Friend, it is due to the good, kind, and perfect providence of God that you are here listening to that gospel. And it is my prayer and eager hope that his providence would draw you to himself this morning to turn away from your sin and self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over your life and be born again, be regenerated with new life in Christ, be forgiven and be reconciled to God and be remade as a worshiper of the God who deserves your worship. That's our prayer and eager hope for you this morning. And it is providential that you're here to hear that. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this reminder that you're always present, that you're always at work. How often we just go through life being the very real beneficiaries of your providential care and guidance, having not even been made aware of it. Father, we thank you so much that you love us that much, that you care for your children that much, that you are that faithful to your promises, to work in the small things, to work in big ways, to work according to your timetable, and even, Lord, even to work through the sins of mankind to accomplish your perfect and good will. Forgive us, Father, for when we want something other than your will, when we think that we know better than you, and when we consider the ways in which you have used natural and ordinary means to accomplish your good and perfect will in our lives, we know that your will and your purposes are best. Conform and align our will with yours and lead us in the way everlasting. And Father, we pray for those that are among us that have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you would grant them faith and repentance to trust in Jesus once and for all. To lay themselves at the foot of the cross. To beg forgiveness for their sins. To see the granting of that forgiveness on a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Lead them, Lord, across that line of faith and remake for your own glory a new worshiper of the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would continue to work providentially in our lives and in our church and in our families until you come to bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.